I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Uncertainty is the bane of the cryptocurrency world. When building a crypto asset and selling it to the public, entrepreneurs have to figure out whether or not it is akin to a stock or a bond, and as a result, whether or not it should be registered with the SEC. But this is a facts and circumstances test, one that turns, according to the famous Supreme Court case of SEC versus Halley, on whether the people buying a digital asset are investing their money in a common enterprise where their profits are derived from the efforts of others. If any of these elements are not involved in the transaction, however, then there's no security. But again, this is no clear test, and there's no clear red line demarcating what is a security, leaving companies to their own devices to make educated guesses with their lawyers. But often, the bets are wrong, and the SEC has been active in punishing firms that sell digital assets to the public without proper registration and approval. One such enforcement action has gained enormous attention, that against the cryptocurrency outfit Block One. Now, quite ironically, the action came just days after cryptocurrency exchanges announced a new initiative to team up and try to rate digital assets and to add some predictive power as to what cryptocurrencies are securities. But already, some of their bets have raised eyebrows. To talk about these and other issues, I'm welcoming back to the show Patrick McCarty, the former general counsel of the CFTC and founder of McCarty Financial, and Catherine Wu, a principal of Notation Capital in New York. Patrick and Kat, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us on. So, Pat, not to be too law professorial, but given the fact that you are one as well, uh, maybe you can give me uh, and really the audience a breakdown on this Block One settlement. I mean, what what were the big key features of this particular uh, case? Well, Block One had to pay $24 million because they failed to register their ERC-20 tokens um, with the SEC. Um, They raised over 12 months, $4.1 billion. Uh, They sold 900 million ERC-20 tokens. And that- That's that's a lot. Yeah, I I think uh, big is important. And I think the SEC was very much taken with the fact that a year-long ICO that raises $4.1 million is something that you need to keep an eye on. I think you said million. I think you meant billion. Billion, you're right. Million, yeah. billion, trillion. Yeah. Hold on. I mean, sooner or later, just you know, just sort of forget the numbers. Now, I, I, as I understood it, some of the interesting facts of this case was that on the one hand, you have a company, uh, the issuer that's registered uh, uh, in the Canary Islands, uh, but at the same time, it's uh, doing some of its advertising in the United States. And and the other thing is, is that. Um, it's it's interesting because the settlement order really does talk about the fact that Block One tried to not actually permit U.S. investors to buy the tokens. They actually um, blocked out U.S.-based IP addresses, and they also had in their token purchase agreement 
a prohibition on anybody purchasing from them if they were a U.S. citizen. So kind of interesting that that you had those two facts, but then as the SEC pointed out, um, Block One had conditioned the market by actually advertising what they were doing in the United States and, and taking out a very large ad in Times Square in, in New York City. So quite frankly, they, they run kind of counter to each other, but that, yeah, that's, that's a big deal. Kat, when you think about the facts and circumstances here, was there ever any debate as to whether or not U.S. securities laws would be triggered? And if there was some debate, wherein was uh, the uncertainty? You know, to be honest, I think the way that Block One went about offering the sale um, made it pretty easy for the SEC ultimately to go to, to you know, analyze it under the framework of the Howey test and say, hey, look, these are clearly securities, right? There was the big promotional stuff. I think the one thing that was sort of um, ridiculous to me was Block One advertised the token sale on a really large billboard in the middle of Times Square um, in the summer of 2017. And it was just like little things like that. And then, of course, there was like the, um, the profiting thing, which was really, I think, obvious because that was also a huge part in the promotional efforts, right? It was that like, hey, if you buy this, this is going to accrue value and then you're all going to get super rich. Um, And then, um, of course, Block One being the central party that was sort of doing all the promotion and doing all the stuff, I think from an outsider perspective, doesn't look great. So Pat, from your perspective, uh, and you've obviously had a lot of experience both at the SEC and the CFTC. What do you think were the major issues that were generated in this particular uh, settlement order? And, and, and what questions do you think were answered? And what questions remain open? I think the SEC answered the question that they're going to be um, very aggressive in this area. That's, that's one. Two, it seems as if uh, they, it's more important to get a settlement than it is in a fine than it is to assess a penalty, which theoretically is going to stop people from doing this kind of thing. I mean, we talked about the fact that $24 million is a very large fine, but in the space of a $4.1 billion raised, it's less than 1% of what they raised. So one would think that if that was going to be the sanction that you would get from the SEC for basically doing an unregistered securities offering, yeah, that's cost of doing business. When you look at it that way, that it, it was, it's really going to be the type of thing which would stop people from doing it if they're going to get the same type of percentage fine for the amount of do, money raised. Do, do you think, uh, just o- along those lines, do you think then that the purpose of the SEC enforcement action was to help better define the parameters of what is a security? So we've had a couple of enforcement actions from now, sort of step-by-step, step, sort of building block by building block? Or do you think, as, as Kat said, it's really a question uh, that they want to focus on the process by which securities are offered? In other words, sort of saying, look, you may think that you're doing this outside of the United States, but when you do certain uh, things, like have billboards in downtown Manhattan, uh, we're going to treat that as if you are actually trying to raise money in the United States. I'm not sure that the SEC was really, I think they they wanted to show that they were tough. I think they wanted to get a lot of money. And I think they also wanted to keep things incredibly uh, ambiguous. There was no discussion about 
whether the tokens conveyed a equity or debt interest. They don't say anything about whether the owning of the tokens led to a right for profits or dividends. Um, they didn't talk about voting rights. All those things seem to me to be sort of like, well, that's the reason why we should call this a security because they had all this control. The fact that um, Block One is a for-profit entity made it like the Dow token report in one respect. But to the extent that you read the settlement order and they say that Block One really tried to basically restrict and prohibit U.S. investors from participating. They blocked out U.S. IP addresses for basically accessing it. And they had in their token purchase agreement a prohibition on any U.S. investors. Um, that may be an explanation as to why the $24 million fine wasn't higher, but there was no discussion about, well, that's the reason why we're making it easier or we're making it less than 1% as a fine. Kat, you know, one of the most interesting, and, and I think one of the, I, I do read some of your annotations to, to these cases, and, and you had ended it with the fact that your, your, your jaw had dropped uh, <laughs> when, when, when reading through uh, this particular order. I mean, what had surprised you the most uh, about it? Among the crypto industry, um, I think there's a certain amount of bias sort of against EOS, right? Because maybe it, it, it represents something that is a little bit against the ideals of, you know, true decentralization and this and that, we don't need to get into it. So I think a lot of people, especially, and even me, you know, when I saw the headline, uh, you know, EO settles, oh, block one settles with SCC, my immediate reaction was, oh God, they've been shut down. Um, and then as I read through what I realized, and this was the most shocking part was, what the order addressed was the manner of the sale. Um, and like I said earlier, what was sold were these tokens based on the Ethereum blockchain, these ERC-20 tokens that ultimately were sort of burned and thrown away. And then they were converted into what's currently being traded, the EOS tokens. And they didn't mention that at all. And so my understanding is that none of EOS's current operations are shut down or affected. EOS tokens are still freely traded. Um, and that was just a huge, gigantic, unanswered question. And then, I don't mean to like bring this to another discussion, but um, the next morning, we saw that there was a different settlement order with um, SIA. And it was sort of similar fact patterns, which was that like, you know what, when you raise at the time, it was not okay. And they left the current tokens that are being freely traded totally alone. And I just didn't get it. Like, what is that? What does that mean? Right? Like, sure, at the time of sale, your ERC-20 tokens and the matter your sale and, and Pat is right, right? I don't think there was enough discussion, but sure, whatever, I'll take that. But what happens today? Three, that's a magic number. Usually we have key criteria as to how to define when one is issuing or selling a security. Uh, there was a little bit of ambiguity in this order because there was so much emphasis placed on the manner of the offering and, and just the language kind of bled into the discussion as to uh, whether or not uh, uh, Block One was selling a security. Uh, but thankfully... 
the crypto exchanges have stepped into the breach and they are offering or have created a kind of super team of crypto exchanges uh, in this crypto ratings uh, agency um, where the exchanges are trying to provide more regulatory certainty as to whether or not a particular digital asset is a security or not. So, Pat, what was your impression of this particular uh, project? Uh, what do you think its strengths are? What do you think is left to be desired? I'm not surprised uh, that something like this was launched. That's a good good thing. Um, I'm not sure that it's going to get an awful lot of traction. Um, I believe that it's an attempt to show that, you know, we're trying to figure out what is going on. Um and, and that we can regulate ourselves. Um, not quite sure that that's going to be convincing to the SEC or others. Um, it's unclear to me why they made certain ratings. Um, um, XRP is probably not going to be very happy as basically being singled out as basically being one of the three worst or closest to being a security in their minds, Polymath and Maker being the other ones. Uh, it, it still was very unclear exactly how they figure it out. And they they admitted as much in their materials, but I just think that this is too little too late. And more importantly, I think what it points out is when they say, well, this is facts of circumstances and you apply this, that, and the other thing, the entire area is screaming for more clarity. And the SEC is not providing it. They had a chance in the block one settlement, as well as the other settlement that Kat mentioned. And they don't seem to be providing that. And I would think that um, that's something that we really need to talk about at some point. Kat, what did you think of this uh, new uh, project? Here's two sides of the argument, right? One is, you know what, we're not getting enough clarity, so maybe as an industry we should get together and and help these regulators for for information. On the other hand, I do find there, that there's something somewhat conflicting about the fact that all council members have a very vested interest in these assets being on their platform, right? If you look at it, it's mostly exchanges. And so let's just take it even outside of crypto for a second. Can you imagine if just a regular stock exchange was in charge of rating their own assets to get listed? I mean, cert, you know, what you're identifying in terms of, you know, the fact that some of the entities either may have holdings in some of the crypto assets that are being identified or, or certainly an economic interest in creating volume and liquidity, uh, uh, and, and, and that could be in turn informed by how they are regulated, uh, that, that is a, a conflict uh, for sure. Uh, but as you also noted, then there's this question about what then is the proper role for private market participants who are trying to operate in an environment where there has not been any regulatory clarity by the the SEC, or at least the SEC has is 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 opting to provide incremental clarity. I'll just put it that way. I think maybe that's yeah. the best way of looking at well, it. Well, the other thing is also, you know, there are um, a number of crypto exchanges that are clearly glaringly uh, excluded from the council. And so is there an argument for, for example, Binance, which recently relaunched their US platform to rely on the council's assessment and then 
listed according to the ratings, I just think that it gets a little bit messy. Like, again, like I understand why and I understand the importance of doing this, but the way that the council was structured is a little bit confusing to me. Well, they said they were inviting other market participants to come in and be members. So it's not like this is a closed group. So I think uh, others, they're hoping others will join. One Although thing, they did issue their rating. I mean, so so the did. rating of those products, you know, are already out. Well, the, the, the interesting part, what I would say, is that, you know, I looked through it and I said, okay, so here here's how the 20 coins got rated. Um, if EOS is meant to be sort of, that's a security, according to the SEC, then everybody else who's rated 3.75, which would be Foam, Hedera, Loam, uh, Loom, Stellar, Tezos, Augur, and Decentraland, as well as XRP and Polymath and Maker, it would seem to me it's like, uh, oops, I guess we better file our National Securities Exchange or Reg ATS filing with the SEC because... Because now you're, 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 you're basically trading something that's deemed to be a security. Yeah. Therefore, if you are not registered as an entity with permission to trade securities, now you're, you're going to have to go through that process of, of, getting, of falling into compliance with, with your regulatory authorities. Exactly. You're going to need broker-dealers to be involved in both sides of the transaction as well. There's just actually just one really important point that I want to point out, which is that like both action as it pertains to EOS and also Satcoins focus on whether the tokens are securities at the time of the sale, not whether they are securities today. And that's important to note because, like I said, again, like the ERC-20 tokens ultimately converted into EOS. The SIA case dealt with SIA notes, which is super confusing because then it converted into SIA funds and, and then not SIA coins, by the way, which is totally different. It's a lot of reading tea leaves. You know, because the SEC doesn't actually come out and say, as it exists today, those are both securities. They're just saying at the time that you raised it, that was, that they didn't talk about what it converted to. They didn't talk about what they thought of the tokens as it was converted later on. If you want some clarity from, from the SEC, you would think that would be the opportunity that they should take to basically say, if they're going to, you know, say we're whacking you because it was a security at the time that it was issued, but today it's not, they would have said something about that. And maybe they said that's a reason why the, the fine is not so big. Yeah. But they didn't. But they didn't, And so right. a missed opportunity. Totally. I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And and the second question, and then the other thing that I thought about was, well, is it possible that they could go back and say, and, and basically, I don't know, either bring another action or do something as it relates to the tokens today. And and that's, by the way, like not entirely impossible, right? Because large financial institutions, they get actions all the time. Like how many times have Goldman Sachs or Wells Fargo been fined and had actions taken against them, right? Multiple times with, with you know, different assets or, or whatever. Like it's not impossible. I just agree with you that I thought it was a missed opportunity that I wish that they had made clear. This question of uncertainty ultimately gets into, well, what kinds of solutions are, are possible, right? And, and right now we're talking about clarity through enforcement. Uh, we see that, well, that depends on the facts and circumstances ultimately of the case and what kinds of declarations in this particular instance uh, the SEC wants to make in, 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 in their uh, uh, settlement uh, in this particular instance about the current status of uh, EOS tokens. Uh, but there's another actor too, and that's and that's Congress. And I know that Pat, you've you've had some thoughts as to how you can lend a little bit more regulatory certainty. I mean, what do you think Congress can do 
uh, in light of sort of the the tea leaf uh, leaf reading, uh, many experts uh, are, are are ultimately subject to. Well, Congress could go ahead and legislate in this area. I think they should. Um, I think a lot of people would tell them that's the right thing to do because it, the industry wants more clarity in this area in a bunch of different ways. Um, I think, unfortunately, that most in Congress are uncomfortable with this space. They don't know enough, and they don't want to look like they don't understand it. So that's a bit of a problem. It's very complicated, but being a law professor as well, I've thought about it. And I really feel like they have to take a comprehensive approach. And they need to provide legal certainty to the industry if you want this area to develop. And I, I believe it's a very good area, has a lot of promise. There are market structure problems and investor protection problems, which must be addressed. The first issue has to be providing clarity on jurisdiction. What's a security in this area and what's not? Well, with that, I want to uh, thank you both so much uh, for your time. And thank you so much for reading the tea leaves uh, of securities law. We really appreciate it. Thank sure you. thing. <laughs> Remember that Schoolhouse Rock cartoon? I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, well anyone spending time in crypto knows that this is not that. It's nearly impossible to explain in bite-sized pieces, and even regulators are scrambling to find the optimal toolset with which to tackle the uncertainty pervading crypto markets. Now, one way to do so is through enforcement actions, and piece by piece, markets will invariably get a clearer picture of the expectations regulators have of them. But it's not viewed as optimal if there are other clearer ways to get the message across. And it will be interesting seeing if regulators or the market will be able to come up with one. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Produced by CQ Roll Call.